the Englishman and the American that sat together on a plane, transatlantic plane flight, which of course took a good while, they got acquainted and got into a discussion about the differences between the British and the Americans. After a while, the Brit says, you know, there's one thing, Yank, that I've always wondered about you guys. He says, why do you always answer a question with a question? What? The American replied, do we do that? Well, I don't think we always answer a question with a question, but we do ask a lot of questions. Often we ask questions for something other than getting information. Wow, did you see that? You know, good and well, he did. Standing right by you looking the same way you are. Or we ask questions to hide our shock or emotion. Did you say cancer, doctor? You heard him right? He did. Or you're not really leaving me today, are you? He just said he was. We have a big test today? That means I flunked, you know. Often our questions are very sad. Why are you doing this to me? Or why did my parents die so young? And sometimes those sad questions are the most important ones and the ones for which we never get answers. You know, one of the saddest questions I ever heard of ever been asked. It's simple but terribly forlorn. Can anybody tell me who I am? It was years and years and years ago, but I still remember. There was a news report of a woman found alongside a highway in Florida, badly injured from an accident. She was taken to the hospital, treated, and she recovered. The problem was she never could remember who she was. It was on the news for a good while with her picture asking, Who am I? Can anybody tell me who I am? And to my knowledge, nobody ever did. And she lived the rest of her life in central Florida not knowing who she was before or what any kind of relationships that she had had. For that woman, the most important question of all was, who am I? Can anybody tell me who I am? Evidently, the question wasn't very important to anybody else because she never got an answer. No one seemed to know. There was another a long time ago who asked the same question, who am I? Can anybody tell me who I am? Oh, he knew who he was. He didn't ask for information for his own sake. He wanted to hear what others thought, but the question was no less important. In fact, it was not only important then to those who heard him ask, it's equally important now, and it may be the most important question of all time. Because everything... For all time and eternity depends on the answer to Jesus' question, can anybody tell me who I am? Without a doubt, that is the most important question ever asked. And more important than will you marry me? Or do you think it will rain or stop raining, as the case may be? Uh, even more momentous than what do you want to be when you grow up? Do they still ask kids that? Way out in front of her, are there any pretty girls in this town? Can anybody tell me who I am? Jesus asked it, and it's vital still. Now, I'm, I'm preaching this week and next. J.D.'s gone this week, and next week he wanted an extra week to get ready for his next series of sermons. He asked me if I could do it, and I told him I would be glad to. So this is a two-part lesson. You get half of it today and half of it next week. In preparation for today, I got out files of old sermons. I try to keep all my research of messages I had preached on this subject over the years, and that's a lot of years now. The stack was two inches high. It could be much more. 
This is history's most important question and the most important we ever deal with. We're going to start in Matthew 16 where Jesus asked the question uh, most plainly. And we'll go a lot of places before we're done this week and next. So I don't have the text on the screen. You're going to have to use your own Bibles. If you don't have one, there's some back there. Or pull it up on your phone if you're one of these modern techies that does that. I don't do that. I'm old. Anyway, Matthew 16. I print them out in my text so the print's big enough I can read easily. Because like I said, I'm, I think my eyes are 100 years older than I am. But anyway, Matthew 16. We're going to read very briefly from verse... 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? That was his favorite name for himself. He's saying, Who am I? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And when Jesus asked what people thought of him, he got a bundle of different answers, most of them more than a little strange. You see the people they thought he was? They were all dead. Now, Jesus was very much alive. Obviously not dead. He was up walking around asking questions. But when Jesus' closest followers responded to what people were saying, people were saying Jesus was somebody who was already dead. Some people, they said, say you're John the Baptist. Now, that's weird. You see, not very long before this, John got his head chopped off. You probably know the story. John the Baptist, the preacher, preached against Herod the king. Not just that he was a bad king and need to be ousted the next election or even impeached. They didn't do things like that. John hit a whole lot closer to home. You see, Herod's brother, Philip, had a wife named Herodias. She decided she liked Herod better than she did Philip, with more than a little encouragement from Herod, by the way. So she left hubby and moved in with her brother-in-law, who was also her brother, half-brother anyway. But since he was king, they didn't pay much attention to that kind of thing. You know, anybody who says soap operas are modern never studied history. The problem with history, it's usually taught by coaches, at least where I went to school. The coaches always taught the social studies, had to teach something. And, like that. and all you learn is names and dates and places and wars. And to, to study history, you need to study people and what's going on. And man, this was people. Herodias moved in with Herod. John the Baptist preaching down by the River Jordan, not all that far from a couple of Herod's palaces. You're not supposed to have her. Don't know how Herod reacted, but Herodias got mad. I mean, she got really mad. Well, it so happened that Herod threw a party, and all the guests got drunk, and Herodias' daughter, whom I assume was grown or nearly grown by this tank, came out and danced. And uh, Herod just really thought that was something, and he promised her he'd give her anything she asked for, up to half his kingdom. She went back to Mama and says, Mama, what shall I ask for? Herodias said, ah, I got it. Tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on a plate. She got it. That was a gruesome platter. Anyway, that was the end of John. But do you suppose it was Herod or Herodias that started the rumor that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead? Shades of tales from the crypt. Anyway, it would about psych you out, don't you think? <clears throat> you arrested the prophet, listened to him occasionally. 
But just because a woman got mad at a young lady was sexy, you killed the guy, and not long after that you hear about miracles and dead people being raised back to life. What's a superstitious old king supposed to think? Yep, he did. Mark 14 says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That's why his miraculous powers are at work in him. And others probably picked up the thought. You know, there was no JBC back then, you know, Judean Broadcasting Company, Nightly News. Today, the prophet from Galilee is purported in Capernaum to have raised a little girl, 12-year-old girl, daughter of Jairus, a ruler of synagogue, from illness. And some who were there said the little girl was dead before he even arrived. Uh, let's go on the scene to Capernaum, uh, Isaac, Bar Israel, come in. I now, they didn't have any of that. They didn't have pictures in the newspaper. And so there'd be a lot of confusion about who Jesus was and what he looked like and all that sort of stuff. But they were wrong. Jesus was not John the Baptist come back to life. No, no, they said he's not John, he's Elijah. Now that's even crazier. John may have gone, been gone for a few months. Elijah had been dead for 800, or been gone at least, about 800 years. Now I suppose if you're going to choose an Old Testament prophet, to bring back to life, Elijah would be as good as any and better than most. Elijah was the one who dared to stand up to the wicked queen Jezebel and her weakling of a husband, Ahab. He was the one who had that famous contest on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Remember where God set down fire from heaven and burned up not only Elijah's sacrifice, but the stones of the altar it was made on and the water they poured over it. Now, I'd like to see burning water. I really would. Elijah worked quite a few miracles, even raising a widow's son from death. And besides, Elijah never did die. He was caught up to God alive. Second Kings 2 tells the story. Came time for Elijah to leave, he and his disciple Elisha. And the only way I remember which one was first, they're in alphabetical order. Elijah, then Elisha. They went to the Jordan River. Elijah took off his robe, rolled it up, and whopped the water with it, and the water stopped flowing, and they crossed to the other side on dry land. That sound familiar? When they'd crossed, Elijah says to Elisha, this is old man to young man, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I'm taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. So maybe Elijah wasn't such a crazy choice after all since he didn't die. But most of all, the Old Testament had predicted that Elijah would come back. Elijah lives about 800 years before Christ. 400 years or so before Christ, in the book of Malachi, the last two verses of the Old Testament say, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now we're going to read just a minute where Jesus comments on that, says something about that prophecy about Elijah. But let's look first at the announcement of John the Baptist birth. An angel came to John's father, Zechariah, priest, 
and told him, and this is found in Luke 1, Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That kind of echoes what Malachi said, doesn't it? Well, in Matthew 17, Jesus said of John, the disciples asked Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. But to the Jews, hoping for the coming of Messiah, the coming of Elijah was eagerly anticipated. They believed that would signal that the Messiah was next, close but hand. But they weren't looking for a symbolic Elijah who came in the spirit of power of the prophets. So maybe Jesus was Elijah. No, no, no other said he's Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Now Jeremiah was the weeping prophet of the years when Jerusalem was being threatened and conquered by the Babylonians. And I suppose Jeremiah was an appropriate favorite for anyone who thought the nation was quite wicked. God might send such punishment again. And I guess others had their favorites too. Now, I don't think they had sharing sections in the synagogue where the guys over here yelling against the God, give me a J, J, give me an O, O, give me an E, E, e give me an L, Joel, Joel. Aren't you glad I didn't choose Zephaniah? I don't think they did that. That may be a modern development. Then it may not. Maybe they didn't have personal preferences. I don't know. I do know that it had been a long time since Israel had had a bona fide prophet 400 plus years from Malachi to John the Baptist. So the curiosity mounted and the rumors flew fast and furious. When Jesus said, can anybody tell me who I am? He heard all the answers. But when Jesus asked, can you tell me who I am? Peter had the right answer. You are the Christ, Peter said. And for a Jew of the time, that was a mouthful. You see, our English word Christ is just an anglicized form of the Greek word Christos, which was the equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach, or Messiah as we say it, which meant an anointed one. Anointed, what's that? You know, every once in a while, in some church circles, you will hear somebody talk about anointed music, John, or anointed preaching. Now, that ain't this. Since the time of the giving of the Old Testament law, and maybe before, the practice of ceremonial anointing had been a very special thing among the Jews. The only place it's really described in detail is the very first that we know of, which was the anointing of Aaron, the brother of Moses, when he was anointed to be the high priest for the nation of Israel. Exodus 39 describes it. 
They made special garments for the high priest with all kinds of scarlet and gold and purple twisted linen and golden thread and a gold breastplate and turban with a gold plate on the front and there were stones that went in the breastplate. You know, it must have been quite a sight to see him all dressed up. I don't think he'd made the front page of GQ, but uh, Gentleman's Quarterly. But that must have been something to see. Well, after they made all the special clothes, before Aaron could begin his duties as a priest to serve God for the people, God told Moses to anoint him. And the ceremony is described in Leviticus 8. Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water, and then they put all the fancy clothes on him. And then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils, and the basin it stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Now, they must have had a big vat of oil, not just a little hornful if he did all that. But they would make the guy get down on his knees, and they'd take the horn, and it had this olive oil in it with special spices, a recipe specially for anointing oil in it, and they would pour it on his head, and one of the psalms says it ran down on Aaron's beard. I put lotion on my beard every day to keep from getting scratchy, but this was special lotion. It says, you are God's priest. Every generation of priests after that, the ceremony was repeated. Anointing a man with special spiced olive oil set him apart as a priest, one who could enter the temple and serve God on behalf of the people. Well, the time came, a few hundred years later, when Israel begged for a king, like the neighbors had, and God gave in to their demands reluctantly, and the first kings were selected and anointed. It's not described just as they were anointed. Saul was the first big tall guy, you know, that Samuel anointed. And then David, the shepherd boy, later. And after that, each king was installed in office with a lot of pomp and pageantry, including anointing. The anointing of Solomon, son of David, to be king following David is described in more detail in 2 Kings chapter 1, where David tells Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and they came before the king and he says, you take the servants with you, set Solomon, my son, on my own mule, take him down to the Gihon spring, there have the priests and the prophet anoint him king over Israel and blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. So they did. And all that description is repeated, says they did. All the people went after him playing flutes and rejoicing greatly. So the ground shook with the sound. <clears throat> now this was while there was a rebellion going on because David's son Adonijah was trying to have himself declared king. And after that, all the kings of Israel were, we'd call it, inaugurated or installed or coronation ceremony or whatever by having spicy olive oil poured on their heads. To us, that's weird, but that's the way they did it. Once in a while, a prophet was anointed to be God's spokesman to the people. Now, in an event that happened before the one we described earlier about Elijah and Elisha, Elijah has just finished the fight, the contest with the prophets 
of Baal on Mount Carmel, and then he takes off running because Isabel threatened, uh, Jezebel's threatened to kill him. And he ends up down at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and and he's really discouraged and disappointed. And and uh, God says, "What are you doing here?" And he says, "Well, God, let me tell you about it." Well, God says, "You go back, go to the desert of Damascus." And anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Now that's weird. That's enemies of Judah and Israel. Anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. So a prophet was anointed, at least on that occasion. But the mystique of anointing wasn't just because the Jews had a long history of prophets, priests, and kings who had been installed in office by having olive oil poured on their heads. Through all those centuries, God had predicted time and time again that a king would come, or a priest would come, or a prophet would come. Moses, the first to predict a prophet, God will raise up from among your brothers a prophet like me. And although the people of Jesus' day didn't comprehend it, the coming Messiah, anointed one, was to combine all three offices, prophet, priest, and king, into one. They thought mostly of a coming king and not the kind of king Jesus was to be. But the coming Mashiach, or Messiah, Christos, the Christ, the anointed one, was to be the fulfillment of all those prophecies. So to affirm that Jesus was the Christ was to say he was the culmination of all the long predictions that had been made 1,500 years almost to Moses over and over and over again about someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming. I've, had, I've used over the years one little home teaching system that says the theme of the Bible is someone is coming, Old Testament, someone has come and someone is coming again. That's a good summary. Folks, Christ was not his middle name. It was his title. It was not only who he was, it is what he was. And we need to understand that. Peter went even further than that. He says, you are the son of the living God. And that's next week's message. And I'm aware that some people should say we should not say who was Jesus, but who is Jesus. But unless we understand who Jesus, the man from Nazareth, was, there is no is. Unless Jesus was something more than a man who lived long time ago, then he does not exist as an is, but only as a was. So we must ask and answer, who was Jesus? But for now, I want to ask one more important question. So what? My dad used to say, every sermon needs a so what. So here it is. So what? What does it matter that Jesus was Messiah? So Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies about a coming anointed one. That's part of Jewish culture and Jewish history and Jewish religion. What does it mean to me a week from Thursday? So what? And I have to ask, do modern Americans 
even modern Christians really have any idea what Christ means and how it applies to us. Now, back when I started preaching about 100 years ago, well, it wasn't quite 100, but it's more than 60 years since I started. We could probably reasonably say that most Americans understood much of the religious language we use, but no more. I'm not even sure they understood Christ then, though. And now, much of our society thinks Christ was his middle name, or his last name, maybe, or just a cuss word, if you think of Christ at all. But are we any better? Do we really understand what Christ means? And whose fault is that? Are we any better if we who claim to follow him don't really know what it means, how it applies to our lives, our families, our churches, our nation, our culture, and our future? What does it mean to us that Jesus was an anointed one, the fulfillment of all, all the prophecies? We've seen that anointed referred to prophets, priests, and kings all rolled into one. So how does that apply to me? What do I need with a prophet? Aren't prophets just to foretell the future? No, no, and no way. The major job of the prophets in the Old Testament was not prediction. I mean, you can read all 66 chapters of Isaiah and not run into more than about a dozen places that it's clear prediction. And he's the one who says the most about the coming Messiah, probably. The job of the prophets was to give people the message God wanted them to hear and it was mostly condemnation for their sinful abandonment of God's way for turning to other gods. They often needed a word from the Lord. Now do we in Mid-America in 2019 need a word from God? Oh, brother, do we? We need very much be like the Old Testament king Zedekiah who summoned Jeremiah the prophet and says, Is there any word from the Lord? Now Zedekiah was about a day late and a dollar short. For years, Jeremiah had been predicting the Babylonians would come and conquer. He even named, God even named through Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the length of time and all kinds of stuff was going to happen. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had already conquered Jerusalem. He's the one who gave Zedekiah the kingship. Nebuchadnezzar had made Zedekiah king. Then the Babylonian army had backed off for a while because of the involvement of the Egyptian army. And uh, that's when Zedekiah calls Jeremiah and says, is there any word from God? Folks, we desperately need a word from God. You know the major reason for such tragedies as the recent shootings in El Paso and Dayton, the high crime in Chicago or any other horrible crime sprees you have to name? Not guns, not insanity, not President Trump's tweets. The problem is sin. I started to say sin pure and simple, but sin is not pure and seldom simple. But the problem is sin. And when the people of God sinned in the Old Testament and turned from him, what did he do? He sent a prophet. What, is, what was Jesus if he was the Christ but the last in a long line of those who spoke for God, who brought his message to the people. That's exactly how the book of Hebrews begins. And Hebrews is almost entirely about the superiority of Jesus and the new covenant the old way. It starts in the past. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now. 
We spend a lot of time talking about Jesus as the Savior, and so we should. We give a lot of attention to the grace of God, and so we should. We talk about receiving Christ or accepting Christ or inviting Jesus into our lives and hearts, whatever your preferred way of expressing it is. I don't care, and that's good. But how can we say we know Christ if we don't even know the meaning of his major title? A word intended to be descriptive of his work, not just for the Jewish nation, but for all of us. And the first part of this is intensely important. There's a passage in Proverbs that was misused by preachers for decades. It's Proverbs 28:18, where it says that where there is no vision, the people perish. Preachers used to use that verse and talk about casting vision, by which they meant laying out plans for their church for the future and what they thought God wanted them to do. Please don't use that word that way. Biblically, a vision was something sent from God with a specific meaning and message. That verse is translated in most modern translations something like this. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. You know how I I translate that verse? While the cat's away, the mice will play. If there is no message from God, whoo, let's have a party. While the cat's away, the mice will play. And if there ain't no cat, boy, that's better off yet. That's the problem with a big chunk of our society. One of our political parties booed at one of the conventions a few years ago when someone suggested including a reference to God in their platform. I don't want any revelation of God, any vision. But folks, we have come to the point, it's been a generation since we said, if it feels good, do it. It's any better now than it was then? No. We need to listen to Jesus who said he came that we might have life and hand abundantly. John 10.10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, is that just endless life, life forever in heaven? No, I don't think so. I think if we would listen to Jesus more, to our own selfish desires less, our lives would be a whole lot fuller of the things that really bring satisfaction. Let's just compare what Jesus said with our dominant attitudes. Luke 12, 15, he says, Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, literally, the Greek means life is not made out of a bunch of stuff. That's not formal Greek, but that's what it says. Life is not made of stuff. What do we say? He who dies with the most toys wins. The one I like is get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. Whatever led us to believe that more is always better. How many of you can say you are basically content with your life as it is now? Be honest. Good. 1 Timothy 6, 8 says if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. How many of you would be content if all you had was food and clothing? Well, that's a little different. Now, I know those are not Jesus' words, but they are from one of his Chosen, inspired messengers. Can you see how contentment would solve a lot of our world's problems? What about the list in Matthew 15, where Jesus said the things that come out of a man are what contaminate a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. 
Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. What's slander? Just bad-mouthing somebody to somebody else. Compared the words of Paul on that one in a similar list in Ephesians 4. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, how many of us are bitter about something in our past? Maybe about something that's happening. I have a sister who has been bitter against my father from the time she was a teenager. She's just a few years younger than I. She has been bitter all of her life. Simply because she didn't think God was available when she needed him as a teenager. It is her major motivation, it seems to me, like I can hardly stand to be around her. She has no faith. I don't even like to see her son's posts on Facebook. They're often so full of rot. Uh, bitterness is her main emotion, it seems to me. Now, I may be wrong in judging her wrong. I don't know her, won't name her and you don't know her, but... I've often said that bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Bitterness does nothing but destroy us and our relationships. Get over it, Jesus said. That's not always easy, but we must make the attempt. Do you suppose anger and rage had anything to do with the recent mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton? Dayton is a little too close to home. My oldest son works for a construction company with its headquarters in Dayton. And he's often there. Do you suppose anger had anything to do with the murders in Indy? Any of you watch the news this morning? I'm a news junkie, I'll admit it. Yesterday, at a Penn Station sandwich shop in Indianapolis, two teenagers got into an argument, and one 18-year-old shot the other one and killed him. Two families destroyed, two young lives ruined, both the dead guy and the other guy. Over what? They got angry about something. When I was a kid, I was angry. I had a really short fuse. Till in junior high school, my dad told me, the next time you get your glasses broken in a fight, you buy the new ones. I wore them taped at the bridge for several weeks. I decided this, this isn't getting me anywhere. And I determined, I determined with God's help I would not be an angry person. You ain't seen me angry. A couple of times in the last years I've had to get up and walk out of a meeting because I was so close to angry I knew I could not cross that line. I just would not be angry. Now how many modern Christians think of anger and bitterness as being sinful? Jesus said it's bad as murder. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. You heard it was said to people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I know people like my sister, angry all the time. Now we talk about the dangers of the biggies, like adultery and lust and murder and theft, and so we should. But I'm convinced that more marriages are ruined, more lives destroyed by bitterness, anger, lack of forgiveness, malice, and just plain old criticism than any of those other big ones. Now, do we as modern Christians see anger or bitterness as sin? Jesus said it was as bad as murder. I heard a very fine Christian attorney 
Years ago when I was preaching in Kokomo, we had him come speak to our young people, and he stood in front of them. He says, you know, there's, there's never but one reason for divorce. You know what it is? Kids said, oh, money or in-laws or sexual immorality. He said, no, no, no. Nobody guessed until he finally said, it's selfishness. He said, the only reason for ever for divorce is somebody's being selfish. Now, what's the Bible say about considering others better than ourselves or loving our neighbor like we love ourselves and uh, humility? A lot, an awful lot of what we say to one another comes out as I'm better than you are, I know better than you do, and I'm going to tell you so. Is that humility? What does that do to relationships? That's enough on that. We've we got to finish this up. There's a whole year's worth of preaching on that. But do you see why, see why I say we need to listen to God's prophet? Do we need a priest? And we talk a lot about Jesus being a sacrifice. But did you know that anyone who offered a sacrifice was supposed to be a priest? One of the reasons God rejected Saul, the first king of Israel, was because he offered a sacrifice when he should have waited for Samuel to show up to do so. And the whole priesthood system was set up, it seems to me, to emphasize to the people how completely sin had separated us from God. God's there, and we're here, and how can we get there to a holy God? Well, we've got to have somebody in between who is duly consecrated. I think it's for emphasis more than anything else. Isaiah says, your sins have separated between you and God. We can't even approach God without a go-between, and that go-between mediator is Jesus Christ. Back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. When Christ came as the high priest of things of already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so they will be outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, to set free from the set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When Jesus said in John 14, "No one comes to the Father except through me," do you read that as no one gets to heaven except through me? That's not what he said. He said, no one comes to God except through me. How can we approach an almighty God on our own without Jesus as our mediator? Need to get to the end of this. We need a king. A king. Man, we live in a democracy. Well, not really. It's a republic, but that's a civics lesson, not a sermon. Did you realize Jesus said a whole lot about his kingdom and very little, almost nothing, in fact, about the church? Use the word church twice. When a lot of modern Bible teachers relegate the kingdom of God to sometime in the future, a thousand years when Jesus might reign here on earth, 
we're removing much of the meat from Jesus' teaching for us here and now. Folks, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is not of this world. In other words, not like an earthly kingdom. I think the best definition of the kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts and minds of men and women and boys and girls. That's the kingdom of God. But we know so little about what it meant to serve a king. We miss the point entirely. We don't have a king. We have a president. We can badmouth him all we want to, throw him out next election, impeach him if we don't get our way. And then we're supposed to know what it feels like to declare our allegiance to a king. These days, many won't even salute our flag, say the Pledge of Allegiance, which, by the way, says we are a people under God. You know, I remember when that phrase was inserted. I was in seventh grade, and we'd said it, one nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all for six years, and we stumbled over it for weeks to add under God to the pledge in 1954. We like to quote Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call a name on the Lord? We don't often even consider what Lord means. We're like the poem Invictus, I love the poetry and hate the theme, the thought. The poem Invictus, we are the masters of our fate. We are the captains of our soul, although it's in singular. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's wonderful poetry and horrible theology. Want to bet? No way. He is the master of our faith. Think about it this way. Suppose you live in a little village between two competing city ruler kings. Or like me, you live out in the country. <clears throat> and the king of Crawfordsville and the king of Rockville are at war. And I'm a little closer to Crawfordsville than Rockville, but I like the Rockville king better. And so I'm going to call on the name of the king of Rockville and call him my lord. And so he'll defend me against the king of Crawfordsville. You think I'm being silly? That's about the way it was. Every mayor of every town was called a king. Unless it was a big king like David who relegated all those little kings to a non-status. But anyway, so what do I do? What am I going to do to the king of Rockville? I'm going to say, well, uh, you help me, I'll help you. He says, you'll do more than help me. You'll serve me. You'll do what I tell you to do. Or I ain't coming to help you. How many of us think like that when we say, call on the name? What do we think means call on the name? Jesus, save me. There's a whole lot more to it than that, folks. There's a lot more commitment in it than that. Now, am I advocating salvation by works? Of course not. But consider, how can we truly say we are following Christ if we don't fully understand who he was and who he is. If Christ is such an important title, it is often used by itself without the name Jesus to identify who he was like many of the passages we've read. How can we do anything else but try to understand it, try to share that understanding with others? Don't ask somebody, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Ask them, do you believe Jesus was and is the Christ? And if they say, what's that? Explain it to them. That is what we must believe. That is what we must declare because Jesus said, if you do not believe I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. To be continued next week, same time, same station. Let's pray. Father in heaven.